Okay. Recording. Episode 15. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Welcome to The Freshman 15, a film discussion podcast where we focus on the freshman works of 15 notable directors. Here's what we do each episode. We talk about a different freshman film, what's good, what's bad, what themes and stylistics the director went on to use in later films, and what was kicked to the curb. Also, we'll give you our opinion on whether the film still stands up, if it ever did, or if it's for completists only. My name's Daniel Long, and my grandmother and I carry on whole conversations without ever opening our mouths. And I am Spartacus. Should we get started? Before we get full beast into the movie, the director in question for this, our 15th episode of The big Freshman one. 15. It's a big one. It's a big one. A little bit of house cleaning. Listener, feedback on episode 14, which is Errol Morris. We have some. Yeah. If you'll indulge me. Please. This comment came through Facebook, and it's from Melissa, who lives in Washington. Melissa had to say, I went online to see what clips I could find of this movie. And of course, she's talking about Gates of Heaven. I have to say I enjoyed what I found. The touching absurdity and study of character makes me want more. You were talking about the doc formula A plus B equals C. Listening to you discuss the film, I thought about high school students I work with who want to be spoon-fed that formula. They don't want to discuss things. They don't want to formulate their own ideas, opinions, and beliefs. They want to be told what to think. Tie it up in a neat little bow. The end. It makes me want to rip out the last pages of their short stories. No conclusion for you. And again, that's from Melissa from Washington. Thank you, Melissa, by the way, for writing. Yes, thank you. And what a great comment. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like if there's anything to be taken from the films of Errol Morris, it's exactly that, is this culture is moving in a certain way. And, right. And Errol Morris is doing everything in his power to stand up against the wind of that. Yeah, and I like that idea of actually ripping out the last... Short story yeah, pages. <laughs> why not? I mean, just because you are left with making sense of it on your own. Yeah. Doing something with the material that you may not have otherwise, which you're Right. Errol Morris asks us to participate in that way. You know, what if we just removed the final act of some of these films? You know, yeah, that's a whole different and maybe very unsatisfying experience. But even just recently in our Oscar special, mm-hmm. we were talking about Moonlight. Yeah. That ending that you're just like, come on, you're you just when you're starting to show me and tell me what right. what what's going on with this guy. But then here we are struggling and we're discussing in a way that we never would if we would have gotten a more quote unquote complete ending or answer out of it. You become a part of it, and you become a part of the ongoing story that I think it wants to, like these films want to tell. Yeah, and what better thing for film to do. So anyway, thank you again, Melissa, for the comments. We appreciate it. Waiting. Waiting to kill. Waiting to heal. Waiting to die. One by one, the men turned black. We waited for the last snowflake to dissolve. So, Daniel, anyway, elephant in the room. Let's talk about it. Fifteen. Fifteen? You got here fast. Yeah. I don't know. I say 15, but, you know, counting specials and all that, this is our 23rd episode, technically. And, you know, we get asked the same questions a lot. Are you going to continue? What are you going to do next time around, if not freshman films? And we want to talk about all that. In fact, if you want to skip to the end, you'll hear our commentary about all those sorts of things. But one of the questions that I've gotten, I'm sure you've gotten as well, is who's your closer? Who's the one that's going to bring it home? This is a big one. Yeah. Well, I remember when we were talking about it, because, you know, you 
you can't have these kinds of discussions without bringing up the big guys. You right. know, you have to at least bring up the idea of a Scorsese or a, or a Hitchcock or you yeah. know Wells, all all these people. I mean, these are the important guys, and certainly Stanley Kubrick was part of that discussion. But you and I, in our early discussions about it, we were just like, yeah, but his freshman film was this thing that kind of no one liked. That's kind of a, and we would dismiss it. But we Including kept him, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Stanley Kubrick was actively trying to destroy all known copies of Fear and Desire right. during his life. But we kind of kept coming back to it because, you know, I mean, what's, what's the point of this whole podcast? It's not just to talk about the freshman film in question, but use it as a gateway to talk about the whole career of a notable director. And these have actually been, I think, some of my favorite episodes, going into these episodes knowing, okay, yeah, we're going to talk about the freshman film, but we're going to talk about this filmmaker's whole catalog. Right. I think Fear and Desire lends itself to, okay, we need to kind of move on from it and talk about all the other things. Well, sure. Yeah. Done, so. Yeah. I think we can probably agree that there's not maybe as much to talk about Fear and Desire as a freshman film right. as there might be about a lot of other freshman films for reasons that'll become obvious. But nevertheless, this is it. This is where he started. This is Fear Kubrick. And Desire. 1953 film, Fear and Desire, uh, made on a shoestring. I want to say for like 10 grand, something like that. Something like that. I mean, he had to borrow money, I think, from a lot of different places. He put right. some of his own money in it. I think he did. Was it his uncle that, that was really rich, maybe, and kind of gave him money to make this film? Oh, you, but, I, you could be right. I'm not sure. Yeah. So I, I know that he was trying to scrounge a lot of change to make this thing. And it's not long. No. And it's not complicated. No. So, and, and that being said, for old time's sake, Daniel, premise of fear and desire. Do you mind? I don't mind at all. Um, I'd actually like to start with the opening narration of the film, which I think gives us nothing about the plot, but is, it, it really does set us up. Yeah. There is a war in this forest, not a war that has been fought nor one that will be, but any war. And the enemies who struggle here do not exist unless we call them into being. This forest then, and all that happens now is outside history. Only the, Only unchanging, the unchanging shapes of fear, shapes and, of doubt fear and, death. and doubt and death are from our world. These soldiers that you see keep our language and our time, but have no other country but the mind. So that's pretty clear. <laughs> it's, it, it is all the compelling gravitas of a middle school poet whose parents are going through a divorce. So here's the premise of Fear and Desire. It's about four soldiers who I think we learn that their plane has crashed and they're in this forest behind enemy lines and they're, they're really trying to make their way back to where they should be, to their base. They try to build a raft to cross the river and, and they see that there's this enemy base that then they see a general and they're not sure what to do with this general. They come upon these women and one of those women sees them and so they actually take her hostage. Madness kind of unfolds from here, right. and it's a downward spiral, and you're not really sure where it's going to go. Yeah. And some will live, some will die, and somehow we have to fight to care. That's it. And really, it reads like a kid who's trying to figure out how to make a film. It really does. Which is what it is. I was surprised by that. We're talking about Kubrick. Yeah. You know his films. I mean, you know what he's done. You know his... You can't talk about Kubrick without talking about his aesthetic and his style. Well, let me ask you. So when was it, where was it that you first 
first saw Fear and Desire? Okay, so I first saw Fear and Desire about two weeks ago because I knew we were prepping for this. Right. And I had not heard of this movie before. Uh, and so I just saw it and I've seen it twice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Do I need to ask how it hit you when you took it in? I was speechless. Yeah. I, I was not prepared to see Kubrick as such an unrealized filmmaker. Right. That was the most surprising thing for me. Yeah, I think I think you have a lot of filmmakers that brought such perfection to it their first time out. Right. And you would kind of assume that Stanley Kubrick would be one of those guys. I mean, the perfectionist. Yeah, that he just doesn't let anything go. And to be fair, there are moments, there are compositions. This is the eye of a photographer. Right. And you can, and you can tell that. Now, the storytelling, that's that's a whole other issue. But, you know, I, you can tell he, he, he knows how to operate a camera. He knows how to use depth of field. Yeah. He knows how to focus and he knows how to light and those kinds of things. And that's, you know, for the most part, he knew he knew how to light. It's not completely without merit. Yeah. So when did you see it? So a little over a year ago, I hadn't seen every Kubrick film. And I was like, I want to see the two remaining films that I had not yet seen, which at that point were Killer's Kiss and The Killing. And I saw them and I was like, oh, well, sure enough. These are these are good films. Uh, The Killing, great film. Mm -hmm. Killer's Kiss. I wouldn't go so far as to say great, but it has a really great aesthetic and a really interesting visual approach. So I, I, you know, I I, I was very drawn in by that. During all that, I looked on IMDb and and sure enough, there's another one. And I was like, oh, this is Kubrick's freshman film. Well, I got to go check this out. Every release of the of Fear and Desire is kind of like a sketch release. You know, oh, it's like, well, what's what's going on? This, this feels kind of back alley. And sure enough, I was able to find it on YouTube. But I was intrigued because I'd heard these interviews, Kubrick, you know, talking about it like, oh, it was a finger painting. It was mm-hmm. awful. It was uh, pretentious. The acting's bad. The directing's bad. The storytelling's awful. And this is something I wanted to burn off the earth. You want to see it after that. Yeah. Then you're just more excited to, to see this thing that, you know, I'm like, okay, let's see what Kubrick considers a finger painting. And I probably got about maybe 15 minutes in. That's all. Yeah. And I said, okay, got it. Finger painting. He's not wrong. <laughs> We've talked about freshman films mm-hmm. that don't work. We, you know, we railed on Clerks for a full hour. Yeah. I see Clerks and I just get annoyed and mm-hmm. I get upset and all that. And I saw that and I wasn't annoyed or upset or any of that. I was just like, oh, well, it's just something I wouldn't, you know, it's just not good. I don't know. Yeah, right. But it, it didn't feel of enough consequence to really invest any more emotion in it than that. So it, it wasn't doesn't something, ask for it, I don't think. No, and in fact, if anything, if, if you could say one thing about the film, and this was my impression of it, everything about it, all the emotion underneath it and everything they're trying to communicate is so completely unearned. Yeah. And so you just don't really feel like going on with it. You can't get mad at it because it was not a phenomenon. It showed that he had just enough competence to make another movie. That's all he kind of wanted out of it. And so in that sense, it was a success. So anyways, I did return to the film a month or two ago when we finally decided that Kubrick would be our big episode 15. And my first impressions of it have not evolved all that much. But there you have it. You know, it's interesting that you said that hearing Kubrick talk about it, that he named it as pretentious. And I don't think I would have thought of that. But there is that sense of it where you can tell he's trying to do something that he's not succeeding at. Yeah. So everything feels like at a heightened level where you're like, I'm not where this is. Yeah. So I guess that is a little bit of pretense. I think it's because they they amp the internal monologues up to 11, like right away, right before there's really any reason for us to think that this is anything other than a boring story. Like I I couldn't have been even more than like, what, three minutes in Mm -hmm. and you hear like this over 
overlapping internal monologue of these guys. They're like, what am I going to do? I'm going to die of hunger and I can't die out here. And I was, oh my gosh, uh, what about this guy? The sun's hey, going down. Blame who? I'll blame the people. Keep big... them beat it on a string. Lost, I should look around. Getting hungry. What's up? They're all scared. How much is in back of us? So angry. And you're like, whoa, just, yes. you know, slow your roll, buddy. Right. You know, you, so far, yes. <laughs> all we've seen is your three guys that don't, really appear to be in too much peril just standing in the woods right but that opening narration you know it's you're supposed to feel it right off the bat (laughs) it's supposed to have taken you there and it just doesn't yeah well but interestingly his career was in photography at the time one of the biggest magazines that showcased great photography was look magazine of course in in the 19 i want to say 40s and Mm -hmm. 50s kubrick as a teenager had his photos published in look magazine some beautiful photos, incredible right. work. For him, he felt like this was a natural progression yeah. to go into film. He, he had an eye for setting up shots. Now, the thing that he didn't have an eye for was how this was all going to cut together yeah. later. But he's Stanley Kubrick, so he's everything is just information mm-hmm. that's coming in. He's taking in everything. And I think that he even had the sense and the sophistication to see that this finished product was not great. So, I mean, it's interesting when you look at all the old... Uh, posters used to sell fear and desire oh, no they're all about the girl they're all about the girl you think what is this this isn't has nothing to do with war if you saw the poster and she's in what maybe eight ten minutes of the film or something yeah, and, not much of it but it's all about virginia leith and how she's the find of 1953 or whatever it is and and you know i mean to be fair very attractive girl right and he was certainly very lucky to land such a beautiful lady and this very meager non-speaking role essentially, in a scene which uh, she's kidnapped and there's this sort of strange, I guess in 1953, what would be considered a very salacious moment. Yes. How badly is this going to go? Is this going to turn into like a whole sexual encounter? Yeah, you don't have any idea where it's going. You don't know. And of course, you know, it's uh, doesn't go quite that far, but unfortunately, things go way south. If you haven't seen Fear and Desire, uh, sorry for all the spoilers. Spoiler. Poor Virginia does not make it out of that situation. Which I think is interesting, Given the posters, how her place in the film is, it's not a good place for a woman to be. Right. Yet the poster has so much sex appeal and who she's portrayed to be, which I think is yeah. makes me uncomfortable in terms of just the portrayal of women. My favorite part of the advertising poster, one of the soldiers draping himself all over her and she's trying to resist. And next to him, it says the male brute. Oh, yes. Was that Sydney? Is that talking about Sydney as the male brute? Yeah, he was the one, the worst actor of the bunch, by the way. Oh, my goodness. The worst actor overacting. Yeah. But I just think it's funny that they name him as the brute because he's the most pathetic. Yeah, yeah. Kind of weasel. Well, right. I mean, the guy—the guy's got to be five foot nothing, and and supposedly he's the male brute. Don't run away. Don't make me stay. You're going to tell a general. You're going to tell him I'm in front of him. Come back. Don't tell the general. I wouldn't let you. But it leads into an interesting discussion. Now, now we can rag on fear and desire all day. But let's not. Now, are there things, though, that you saw in fear and desire that are building blocks for what Kubrick did later? Thematically, I think absolutely. I saw a few things that 
he would go on to do in many of his films, a lot of war. It's a lot of war in Kubrick. Yeah, it, war is the, if not the topic, at least the setting, the backdrop of, I want to say, either five or six of his films, of the 13 that he did. So nearly half of his films is essentially a war film. Yeah, and so you have that, but then I think what that allows him to explore, even in this film, this early on, is the idea of, of madness, right. of what kind of drives a person particularly a man, to this level of insanity or kind of breaking down to becoming this character who seems, I'd say Sidney, this character who's draping himself all over, the, all over this woman, he's the one who actually ends up killing the girl. Right. For whatever reason, right? He feels like he's being rejected. I don't know, but... I mean, that's something that he will continue to do. Sure. I mean, you know, you look at Private Pile. Right. In a scene that's very earned, the climax in Full Metal Jacket, Private Pile's madness, where he turns the gun on his drill sergeant and eventually, of course, himself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is a sense where you can kind of tell that that's what young Kubrick wanted. Yes. He just didn't know how to get there yet. For sure. You will place that rifle on the deck at your feet and step back away from it. What is your major malfunction, numbnuts? Didn't mommy and daddy show you enough attention when you were a child? That far into his career, they realized that kind of aspect of sure. uh, of what he started in Fear and Desire is pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, we talked about his photography, of course. So th there's one shot toward the end of the film with the lieutenant in the forest, maybe on the side of a hill or something. And there's this fog that kind of rolls in. And Kubrick just, it, the camera's still, it, it's photographed so beautifully. And this this really like impressionistic style. Right. Okay, all of a sudden you are left to wonder what is being said by this image. He will go on to do that sure. all throughout his career. Yeah. Did he know the moment that he wanted then, or was it a happy accident? That's that's hard to tell. But right. clearly he evolved into an artist who knew the when moment that he that. wanted. For me, I mean, there's things that I saw that were very even just from a very practical sense, that he did again, and that was the use of multiple parts for one actor. That's true. Now, that might have been, I don't know if that was like a budget thing right. <laughs> that early on. It was something that he didn't shy away from. Now, he did shy away from it in his later career. Mm -hmm. But while things were still early, he loved using Peter Sellers in these multiple roles in the same film. It's just something that just added this thing that he seemed to really respond to, even though I would say it wasn't quite done that successfully mm -hmm. in Fear and Desire. But it was still something that you could tell he was open to. I love that. I love that you bring that up because I didn't make that connection from that film to his later films. But that's so true. He does do that. And it's, seen, and it's so deliberate in Fear and Desire that, well, first of all, I think, you know, this needs to be named script which is just it's dog shit the script I mean, oh, let's yeah. be honest it's <laughs> apologies to the family of howard sackler who wrote this masterpiece but <laughs> it, it it's so uh like i said it's middle school poetry right. it's you know it's this like uh you're, you're trying so hard to so hard infuse yeah. this depth into it you know and that was kind of the feeling that i had throughout the whole film it was like watching your nephew's school play or mm. something 
where when something worked, you're like, yeah, buddy, see, that, that, was, that was a great scene that you did. I understood every line of that. Absolutely. And that was great. Like, I, you know, you're kind of rooting for it yeah. in a way. And you know it's ultimately not good. It's not what it needs to be. But you know what? You're looking at a young guy. And, and I think that's why I had an easier time sort of forgiving it, if that's the right word. Because if I had been told going in, oh, this was an amazing first work and it was so popular and it just it launched this guy's career. Mm-hmm. I think I would have gone in with a much different mindset. But just knowing that no one really liked this movie... It kind of helped me look at it with a little bit more of a, a, a we give it a little more grace, I guess. Yeah, to and to watch it honestly, and and to say, oh, okay, what attracted him to the story? What did he do that he probably, looking back, would have just done differently? I mean, there are some shots where I'm like, he's a he has an eye for composition, but yet, and you said this with regard to editing, but he did not know how to do close-ups. No. And, and he uses those to great effect later on. Right. And editing in his films is remarkable. But there are these these moments when they're, it's just so obvious. You're like, okay, you don't have enough money. The binocular scenes drove me nuts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, they look through the binocular. Oh, there's a plane and like there's a little flag and there's, that's, okay, well, look at, there's an airport, right? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then they cut back to people looking through the binoculars and of course they're moving their, their head and then they see this big house with all these... <laughs> Right. All these soldiers. It looks like some like Cape Cod home, by the way. Or, or yeah, and totally. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess we're kind of meant to think they're Nazis because they do say the Reich at mm-hmm. one point. I'm like, oh, wow, craftsman-style home. That's nice. <laughs> well, for me, I see all these things and all these kind of just dumb aspects to it. And to me, it all feels like a product of budget. So you think he, if he would have had more money, he would have... I think that he didn't know where to put the money. Okay. Even just that thing, like, you know, this war could be anything. This could be anywhere. These are just people that could be anyone. This, in a sense, is all in your mind. And, you know, what is this forest? Right. And what is this river? To me, I think Stanley Kubrick is reading his buddy's script and looking at it and going, yeah, okay, well, I guess that kind of covers the fact that this doesn't really look like Germany and it doesn't really look like Poland and it doesn't really look like anything. This just looks like the backyard of somebody's property. For sure. This house doesn't really seem like it belongs anywhere in a a story like this, but it's my cousin's house, Mm -hmm. so, you know, we can use that. And so I think he's kind of building, I mean, even the costuming, he doesn't really need to assign a specific war to this conflict. He's just going to the Army Navy store and seeing what's cheapest yeah. and buying that. So all these things to me sort of add up to him trying to justify the fact that he can't really pay for a better movie. I think that's fair. I mean, I'd give him that. I mean, he's Kubrick. I'd give him anything because of what it's he he has the right trajectory for a film career. Everything from this point gets better. Well, that's true. Easily. I mean, his second film, of course, Killer's Kiss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I said before, I, I thought it was I found it to be an interesting film. Found it to be his second worst film. Right. But it was definitely leaps and bounds better than Fear and Desire. Yeah. And, you know, and he did have kind of a steady incline. And then, but it was just, it was a humble start. And he should be like a source of hope for young filmmakers who are wanting to give it a shot, right? Yeah. It is so interesting, though, how uncompromising an artist that he turned out to be, given how compromised a product Fear and Desire was. I mean, honestly, if I were Stanley Kubrick, I probably would want everybody to burn 
copies of that first film too. Which he tried. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about different filmmakers who are, even with Errol Morris, we talked about this idea of subversion, gates of heaven, subversive film, which is a strange way to think about a film like that, Mm -hmm. which is not, you know, which is certainly not an angry film or anything like that, but there it was subverting. The genre, yeah. Yeah. When I look at Stanley Kubrick, I feel that, yeah, he was subversive, but I think subversive is too lightweight a term for yeah. Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. If I had to classify him, I would say that he's fully into the territory of, we're talking about a dangerous filmmaker. Hmm. I might even go out on a limb here. I think of all the filmmakers we've talked about so far, Stanley Kubrick is the most dangerous filmmaker that we've that we've discussed. So when you say dangerous... I mean, what do you what do you mean by that? I think it's a combination of things. For one, you're talking about a man who has a completely uncompromised aesthetic. Yes. That's important to note. But that's not the only thing that makes someone dangerous. I think the fact that he's combining that aesthetic sense and that talent and that perfectionism with this sort of cultural power. Yeah. He funneled that cultural power into saying, I have the ability, which is something few filmmakers could say, that one man has the ability to change the course of film. And then maybe, and I don't know if this is overstating or not, but maybe even change to a degree the course of culture. Yeah. But Stanley Kubrick had that. Great filmmakers have talked about this. Scorsese said it. Spielberg has said Mm -hmm. it. Many filmmakers that says, when a Kubrick film was released, this was an event. And not just like, oh, this is a big deal. We all want to see this. But this was something that everyone waited for and talked about. What new thing is the Messiah going to show us this time? And when you're talking about someone with that level of power... He, you know that every single time he's going to, ju- he's he's not going to flinch, mm-hmm. and he's going to turn all of his power towards this artistic, cultural, subversive moment, and he refuses to do anything less. This is a dangerous individual that you, that you're talking about, for sure. And I think that one, I mean, he is known for extensive research in his films, so he would take years. He wouldn't even necessarily know what movie he was going to make next, at least how I understand it. But he would be searching for the films by just doing research in a specific area. So he wanted to make a war film later on. So he started reading different books about war and found one that he wanted to, to adapt. And he would push the envelope in terms of technology, of needing to create a lens from NASA to be able to right. to shoot scenes that are only lit by candles and Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon, I mean, sure. This is what I love about Kubrick. He basically says, oh, okay, I see what people are into right now. They're into this genre. I'm going to try to make the best film in that genre. And at the same time, almost subvert that genre. Right. Oh, so people are really into sci-fi films? Okay, I'm going to make 2001. Yeah. Oh, people are really into horror films? Okay, I'm going to make The Shining. Right. He's going to make a piece of art that not only goes against everything that that genre has stated before, but he's going to redefine all the films that come after it, setting himself as the bar for what that whole genre could be. I mean, ambitious isn't even the word. That's just, that's such balls to yeah. be able to approach every single piece like that. I'm sure you've heard that, you know, of course, his great unproduced script, Napoleon. Right. I think I even read something in the last year or so that, you know, oh, finally somebody's going to make Kubrick's Napoleon script. Really? Yeah, I read that. And there was a side of me that was like, okay. 
I mean, I want to be excited about that. It's, right. it's very difficult for me to be excited about. To me, that was, it, well, for one thing, that's been done. The, right. the Kubrick script that's been produced. And of course, you know, uh, AI mm-hmm. was, was the great example of that. And this is not going to be a popular thing to say. I didn't think that was a good film. AI. Yeah. No. I thought it was okay, but I didn't, I mean, I didn't feel like I got the hype behind it all. No. It kind of felt like the flattest, most uninspiring aspects of Steven Spielberg. Very pretty movie, without a doubt, but my feeling with AI was the only interesting 10 minutes of the movie were the final 10 minutes. I was like, okay, finally we're getting somewhere. This is something I want to talk about, but that's where they ended it. And I'm like, you know what? I just don't know that Kubrick would have been satisfied with that. And in fact, even after the script was put together, it was Kubrick's plan to actually give it to Spielberg all along anyway. Oh, it was? Yeah. but I didn't know that. But he wanted to produce it, and so he wanted to be a lot more hands-on with it and that kind of stuff. Of course, Kubrick died in 1999, and Steven Spielberg went ahead with it anyway. Would that have been a different film had Kubrick stayed alive? I think it would have. Yeah. But, you know, how different? I don't know. It's a, it's a question for the ages, I suppose. I mean, here's a question that I have for you um, is what is the first Kubrick film you saw? Wow, that's a good question. I don't know that I saw a Kubrick film before college. Okay. I want to say it might have been 2001. And that's something I, I'm actually glad you brought up because with nearly every every Kubrick film, I've had the exact same experience with it, which is my first viewing of it, I didn't care for it. So the way everyone? Not all of them. This is amazing. Yeah. So wait, what is it about? You probably can't distill every experience into one reason, but. I remember seeing 2001, you know, and it was all hyped, right. the whole thing. And I was like, but it's not even good. I mean, it's just, it's, it's. Wow. Yeah. It's like he's going out of his way to annoy me rather than make a film. I remember thinking that. That's like, amazing. You know, it was just, it was so ridiculous. I remember thinking, well, there's some tense moments that I guess that's kind of, you know, he's really playing up that tension. So that's kind of good. But when I returned to 2001, a few years later, I was like, I don't know how I missed all this, which is so rich. Just incredible. Mm-hmm. I remember just actively hating. In fact, there's still. To this day, a review of A Clockwork Orange that I wrote as a very young man, talking about what a terrible movie A Clockwork Orange is. That's crazy. It's true. And I was just, you know, I was a kid and Amazon.com was new. That's a, that, <laughs> wow, I want to read that. It's got to be on there. It may, I think it's still on there, which is embarrassing to me. But, you know, I was talking about it, like, oh, you know, I just finished the book A Clockwork Orange. And, you know, I, read, I was like, oh, my gosh, it's just, it's like he tried to make the movie, but he just put a bunch of dicks all through it. And it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> porcelain dicks <laughs> all through it and i just i was like you got to be kidding me that's just that's just so dumb and uh wow. yeah you know just example after example where i'm like well what is this what is that what is this and then i would go back for a second view and that second view was magic just mm-hmm. absolute magic it's almost like i had to get over the experience of being surprised by it. Once I was no longer surprised by it, I was then ready for it and I could dig into it. Uh, I don't know. No, yeah, and I think that you bring up a good point. I think you bring up the point of of the way he subverts the genres. I have the sense that I I know what to expect. Go, oh, okay, well, yeah, this is going to be... I I remember this with Full Metal Jacket, actually. Right. Oh, this is gonna. Be, this is a war film, and I, the first Kubrick film I remember watching, which is absolutely insane to me, um, is The Shining. Yeah, I mean, I was young. It was like pre junior high. When I oh, saw that's it. rough, dude. It's like I haven't been able to watch it until probably about a year and a half. Ago. Yeah, no, even as an adult, that is a. T- 
terrifying film. Right. And I avoided rewatching it because it just totally screwed with my mind. But Full Metal Jacket, I, that's one of those films I, and I didn't see until college. And I had that experience where I kind of, oh, this is Kubrick. Okay. You know, and, and I'd seen 2001 and I actually, I loved it the first time I, I saw it. But then when I saw Full Metal Jacket, I'm like, I don't think I, I get it. That wasn't, I didn't see the point. It's like, I didn't, I didn't see the hype or what was such a big deal. Well, the structure is so odd. Yeah. Of that film. It has, it, the, the structure is so contrary to anything a movie is supposed to be. Yeah, and I wasn't ready for it whatsoever. But having watched it again, I wouldn't say many times, but more than one time after, I'm like, wow, what he's doing? Taking these characters through the journey that he takes them. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable. That is phenomenal. It really is. And you don't, but you, at least I didn't get that right away. Maybe I was resistant to it. I don't know, but yeah. It was either The Shining or Full Metal Jacket was the next one. Probably The Shining, honestly. And I do remember that I was old enough that when I saw The Shining, I did appreciate it the first time out, Mm -hmm. which is kind of funny looking back because if any movie should hit you wrong the first time you see it, it should probably be The Shining, but... But man, what a film. Martin Scorsese said it. He said, it's unfortunate that he only made 12, 13 films. Mm -hmm. He said, but you know what? When I really think about it, that's enough. Because every Kubrick film has so much in it. Each film is like four films, five Mm -hmm. films, you know? And I think that's true. He packs so densely the material in all of those films not just the script, but just the visually everything that you're taking in, all the metaphor and all the the composition and the light, just, just everything in it, it, just every single frame yeah. is so big. That's how it works with him. Yeah, and I think the film that I've seen, and I've come to really like it a lot, but I remember the first few times I'm like, man, I am not getting this, was actually Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. There was so much about it I thought was funny, but I think like the irony and the, certainly the subversion of what was going on was lost on me. The first few times I was watching it. Yeah. Since, I, I feel like that's the film I actually have come to appreciate more, not necessarily more than the others. My journey with it has changed over time. Yeah, Dr. Strangelove, I think I, it's safe for me to say that that's the film that turned me into a Kubrick convert. Mm-hmm. Even without context. Now, you need context. Certainly. But even absent of context, it was so clearly operating on this level that was so much more than any other film that I'd seen that was even vaguely dealing with those kinds of topics mm-hmm. it just there's so many iconic moments from that film that you just can't get over I mean, when when the world at the end of the film is literally blowing up yes. into nuclear mist the song oh. comes in you know we'll meet again yeah don't know where don't know when we'll meet again don't know where There's not really even a word for it. It's just this, it's absurd. Yes. It's absurd because it has to be. Right. That's part of what makes Kubrick such a dangerous filmmaker is because he's like, look at this, look at this pain and this death and this cold war that we're in the middle of. Mm -hmm. Look what could happen to every single human being on the planet. We have to grapple with the absurdity of this. It's not just horrifying. We have to understand He's taking our faces and shoving it in the screen and saying, look how dumb. Yes. Look how absurd. You got to get that, man. And somehow no one has ever done that as well as he's done it. Right. And he takes these themes of primitive urges, such as sex, death, and almost all of his films says, okay, how do these things play out? in this particular context. Right. And I mean, that's one of the things I've learned watching Dr. Strangelove uh, as many times as I have is 
wow, there's a lot of subtext in terms like sexual frustration there. There's a, like, how is it that we can both, I mean, thinking about sex, create and then destroy? Yeah. Those two themes seem like they're constantly going through his films. And I think there is danger in kind of bringing these things up because he offers a mirror in some ways to people and asks the question, how is it that we can do these things to one another. It's not accidental in Doctor Strange Love that the film opens with a sex act between two planes right. and closes with Slim Pickens riding a giant metal dick into <laughs> into the earth and destroying it. You know? I mean it, it's <laughs> Hey, what about Major Kong? Yeah, I remember even seeing that for the first time and being like, I don't know that I want that to be what I'm watching. Right. But you have to. You chew mm. on it later and you chew on it over and over and over. And you're like, that's the image that I needed to see about that topic. That's the image that Kubrick needed me to see. That's what it has to be. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. One of the things I've I've been wanting to ask and I've been why well, I've been excited to have this conversation about Kubrick is because I want to know what your favorite Kubrick movie is. My favorite Kubrick. Well, you know what? And I've mentioned this before because I've, I've gotten this paranoia about not coming up with a full ranking, which is, you know, when you were talking about 13 films, this is, you know, it gets so harder and harder. I, went, I did it, man. I went all the way. I ranked all 13. All right. What about you? Did you rank them? I ranked them. Oh, my gosh. Here we go. But full disclosure, there's one film I haven't seen of Kubrick's. Okay. I don't really know. I don't have a good explanation for why, but it's the, the last film. I haven't seen Eyes Wide Shut. You haven't seen it? No. Well, you know what? A lot of people would say that you didn't miss his best one. Okay. I would say you also didn't miss his worst one, but we've learned that painfully. <laughs> so I'm going to rank the 12 that I've seen, and you're going to rank all 13. Yeah, yeah. So here's, we need to get this out of the way too. Should I be, should I count down? See, you know what, man? I Sometimes I know, I feel like you're resisting the countdown. Not on purpose. I just don't. I, you I, don't have the built-in drama of it? I don't have the built-in drama. So I, I think that that's, I need to build that in. Well, it's up to you. So I'm going to count this, I'm going to count this shit down. <laughs> You know what? We should go back and forth. Why not? Oh, wow. Okay, sure. Okay. Okay, well, I will count them down. Okay. And then maybe we can alternate. 13 is the no-brainer. Of course, it has to be fear and desire. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say it's the only bad film that Kubrick made. Yeah. Yeah, easily fear and desire is, is the, the lowest product. Number 12. My number 12? Your number 12. It's fear and desire. Fear and desire, okay. Of the 12 I've seen, fear and desire is on the bottom. So my number 12 was Killer's Kiss. Okay. It was really interesting what he's doing with light, with composition. Uh, you know, even to a degree with editing, with storytelling, with pace, all these kinds of things. I, You know, it was... Uh, he was coming into his own. He wasn't the full-fledged Kubrick by any stretch. But I appreciated the film. I don't know what else to say. It was interesting. Yeah, so um, my number 11 is Killer's Kiss. Here's the thing I actually really enjoyed about Killer's Kiss, and especially the difference between Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss, is I love that he that we're back in the city, and I love how he uses the architecture, yeah. which is something that I think you see yeah. throughout the rest of his work, is how he uses architecture. Yeah. And I think it actually really starts in Killer's Kiss. And perspective, yeah, which is very interesting. In fact, I, there's moments that even, to me, recall the corridors of the Overlook Hotel and those kinds of things. You know, oh, you see yeah. As far back as 
killer's sure. kiss, which is kind of cool. My number 11 is The Killing, okay. which I thought was actually a great film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it surprised me how great it was because so early in his body of work, it's such a solid little caper. It works on the psychological level, and it's easy to see why the killing is what kind of got him, started getting him noticed. And it has a sophistication to it that, quite frankly, most of the films that I've seen from that era didn't quite get to. He was a very young guy when he made The Killing, but right. definitely worth seeing. So my number 10, and I think, and this is hard to say, I think now we're getting into the territory where we're like, okay, well, ranking Kubrick films is going to be difficult. But my number 10, I actually put Spartacus at 10. Okay. Now, I like Spartacus. To me, it, he doesn't subvert it as much as I think he would like to. The, the epic. And let's be honest, he was making someone else's film. He was. I mean, he was a director for hire, sort of, in that. Yeah, and in fact, he, because uh, this was originally Anthony Mann's film. Oh, I didn't know whose it was, but oh, okay. Anthony Mann exited the project. Kirk Douglas says, I know a guy. Kubrick. And Kubrick came in, and uh, he did a bang-up job without a doubt, but I, I, it's probably the least Kubrickian yeah. of his films. But let's be honest, some of those scenes... Oh, Amazing. Oh, my goodness. Like, the landscape scenes with the fighting, and the, uh, it is it is beautiful. But I think, story-wise, I'll put it there at number 10. Sure. My number 10, I gave to Eyes Wide Shut. You did? Yeah. Okay. Which I will defend as a good film. And okay. I know a lot of people don't feel that it right. is. It's a difficult film. It mm-hmm. is. And it's, it's very psychological. There's a lot of care in that film, though. No, not everything about it works. The ending is a little bit of a groaner. There are things about it that don't thrill me, but some of these scenes, some of these compositions, the tension that's underneath it, mm. it's actually really successful in a lot of ways. So I like the film, you know, definitely in, well into his lower half, but that was my feeling. Okay. Um, so my number nine is where I put the killing. Okay. And again, I love what he does with the storytelling and the structure of that film. I think it's just an incredible way of telling that story. Yeah. Because it could be, it's one of those stories that you, I mean, even now going back to that, oh, it's been, that story has been told so many times. Sure. But to know the context, at least in the time that it was made and to know what he was doing and with structure and trying to tell the story in that way, I'm like, wow, maybe this is where it started, that idea. Yeah. <laughs> this this yeah. nonlinear idea of, of storytelling. So It was interesting. It was a subversion of the heist mm-hmm. tropes, which I think was a fairly common genre of film, even then, but uh, really, really cool to see Kubrick's take on it. My number nine, I did give to Spartacus. You did? Um, okay. Yeah. A movie that I do like, for all the reasons that you say, it's it doesn't feel like it's completely his, mm-hmm. but there are things about it that are just some of the most powerful, iconic. I mean, you know, we even joke at the beginning, but I Am Spartacus is one of the great film moments of- It's a great moment. In all history. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside- on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. We're a richer culture to have Spartacus as a film. Not one of his best, but yeah, there it is. So my number eight is actually Lolita. So I, I really enjoyed the film. I, I enjoyed 
Peter Sellers in this role. This is one of Kubrick's films that I'd seen after seeing so many other films. And this is Kubrick and why he's a dangerous filmmaker. He will take a story that shouldn't be told. Yeah. And he will tell it. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I actually have not read Lolita. Right. But the subject matter and what he does... With storytelling to make you relate in some way yeah. to all of the characters who, in many ways, most are just repulsive. It's so crazy. There's a word that we're not really allowed to use anymore in our culture, I've noticed. And that word is sin. Mm. To me, Lolita is the story of sin. Yeah. It's a pretty remarkable study of that particular topic. What was so interesting about what, you know, having to do with what you just said is uh, the ad campaign for Lolita which were posters that simply said, how did they make the film Lolita or something like that? Because it was just sort of recognized as this sort of unfilmable project, even though the book had a certain amount of popularity and you can't make that as a film. Kubrick said, well, let's see. And it's funny. Yeah, (laughs) it is. It shouldn't be, but it is. It's funny. Come, baby. You know, I love the way you smell. Oh, you do arouse the pagan in me. Um, you just touch me and I, I, I go as limp as a noodle. Yes, I know the feeling. So my number eight I gave to a film that I love, and that is Paths of Glory. Mm. One of the great profound anti-war films. One of the great profound anti-war films until Dr. Strangelove right. was made. <laughs> yes. Such a beautiful, powerful film. Uh, the, the final act of that film is just absolutely unforgettable. It's unbelievable. I like not just the story of that film, but I like the story underneath the film, which is, uh, I don't know if she's German or Austrian, the girl, uh, the, the singing the girl. The singing, yeah, I think she's German. What a powerful moment where, you know, she's brought in essentially to be slobbered all over mm-hmm. and mocked and catcalled and those kinds of things. And then person by person, they see the human underneath this girl who's singing for them. The story that I like that's underneath that, of course, that woman went on to be Kubrick's wife. Yeah. You, you do yourself a disservice if you, if you don't watch Paths of Glory. Great film. And so that's my number seven, Paths of Glory. I think that the cinematography, mm. oh, the one-point perspective through yeah. the different barracks. Sure, and, and, the oh, trenches. And, and the trenches. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And I think you can see a lot of how Saving Private Ryan in some ways, I mean, like some of the scenes that you watch that are so affecting... Kubrick does in in Paths of Glory. Kirk Douglas' character in in his attempting to, just the ethics of war, right? This big question. Like, what are we doing to each other? And and I love the image of the trenches and how the camera, when it's in there, you forget about the world outside. But you can't because it's happening all around them. But in this little tunnel, this thing going on that's really profound and beautiful. Paths of Glory to me is a study of filmic space. It's something where I, I love the contrast between these scenes that are in the trench you feel what's going on. You feel the claustrophobia of it. You feel the death that's just on the other side waiting. Yeah. In contrast to the scenes where we are in these gigantic rooms mm-hmm. and people who are talking about the war that don't seem to understand what they're talking about because here they are and luxuriating in space and saying, but look, look, look at all the space we're enjoying. 
And there's Kirk Douglas saying, you don't understand war isn't like this. It's like a thing that you don't understand because you've only ever luxuriated in space. And I think that's interesting. And we, as you say that, we get to Dr. Strangelove and the Kirk Douglas character is gone. Right. He has a lot of the similar ideas, like this room, everything's happening in this place. You have these, it's not like this architecture anymore, but there are maps on the walls and lights. Right. And Yeah. Anyhow, uh, my number seven, Barry Lyndon. Another perfect example of a film I just didn't get, didn't like, didn't really want to try and get the first time I saw it. I was like, okay, well, that was sort of a miss. <laughs> I don't know what that was about. Mm-hmm. Return to it later. Gorgeous. Just absolutely gorgeous film. Difficult film. Infuriating film, yeah. in a way. Just knowing how it was made, this commitment to this, you know, this natural light that he wanted to try and evoke. Every frame of that thing, it's an oil painting. Every frame. Like it seems literally like an oil painting. It really does. Like if you were to freeze on it, if you were to freeze on any moment from from any scene from Barry Lyndon, you would be like, oh, who's the artist that put that together? The framing is insane. Yeah. So my number six then is um, Full Metal Jacket. I love that film. I think that it has such an interesting structure and it throws you for a loop. And I think, again, it heightens that idea of war. Not It doesn't have a tip. There's no typical structure to war. You can't three-act that thing. No. Right? You, and I think it also emphasizes this idea, this which Kubrick does throughout his films, is this dehumanization of, of people, in particular by what seems like systems that they can't really get out from underneath. And the two-act structure of that film makes it seem like it happens so fast. Yeah. You're in one place at one moment, then you're at war. Yeah. That's what it's like. Yeah. My number six is A Clockwork mm-hmm. Orange. I appreciate the film now much more than I did when I first saw it, needless to say. I think it might have actually gotten higher if I hadn't had such affection for the book going in. Right. And, and I just, I love the book so much. Mm-hmm. I can't describe it. It's, it's one of my favorite books of all time. Really? It really is, wow. genuinely. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you've read I've never read Clockwork it. Orange. You have to learn the language of the book as you read it. I've heard that, but, but it's like, that's true. Yeah, you do. In fact, you read the first chapter and then you go, I don't know what these words are. Wow. And then you read the first chapter again. And then you read the first chapter a third time, and then you try out the second chapter. And then you go back and read the whole thing, and you just have to keep smoothing and smoothing wow. and smoothing until you get through the whole book. And then by the end of the book, you're speaking the language of the book. That's amazing. It really is an amazing experience. But nevertheless, a really powerful film on the topic of violence, quite Certainly. frankly. And that's my number five is A Clockwork Orange. And it's one of those films that, technically speaking, I think it's absolutely remarkable. Story-wise, it's actually the film that I have the hardest time with re-watching. And I think because it's so hard to watch. Yeah. When I was a film student, which is when I first saw it, I was like, oh my goodness, this film is amazing. It's ballsy. Wow. Someone made a movie like this. Yeah. And then over time, as I've, as I've seen it, I was like, yes, I know what he's doing. And I know what he's trying to say, but it's really challenging yeah. to watch. And, and I yeah. think it gets it gets more difficult as I get older, and I don't really yeah. know why. I look back on all the drawings that I did when I was 14, 15, and they were always like these gritted teeth superheroes, these dark mm-hmm. vigilantes and those kinds of things, and uh, you know, pulling out guns and swords. And it's what you draw when you're a 14-year-old boy. A Clockwork Orange, to me, is that whole feeling on film. It's that violent, angry, mixed with pathos, you know, this yeah. this, this young sort of thing. It's Kubrick's comment on that. Through that lens, I, I, I think that's really, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. 
And it's such a great question of at what cost to humanity are we willing to make people good? Yeah. So my number five was Full Metal Jacket. All right. It's, it's also one of the few Kubrick films that I immediately responded to. I remember there was a certain frustration with mm. like, really, half this movie is just this drill sergeant? I mean, you know, when does the story happen? And right. then, you know, you, you later you look back on it and you're like, no, that's... That is the story. It was Kubrick's forensic almost examination of the mechanics of what it means to put on a war. Not the political side of it, but just the actual physical guys that actually have to go over there. Such an interesting study. Uh, I don't know, it makes so many interesting statements. I like the fact that Kubrick was, for most of his career, just a very much an anti-war mm-hmm. filmmaker. But he very consciously was trying to curb that side of things with Full Metal Jacket. Now, I I would still say that it was kind of an anti-war film, but that's not really the thrust of it. The thrust of it is let's not spend as much time protesting it. It's just trying to understand it. Certainly. I have a lot of appreciation for that. So my number four is Barry Lyndon. I think that film is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it is every frame is composed in such a specific way. You can, you see everything. I mean, even if there are 30 people in a scene, everything is choreographed and composed in such a way that, there is no one hidden. Right. I think that that tells the story of Barry Lyndon. People are actually hidden from him. He's so narcissistic. He's so yeah. like selfish that he can't really see other people. But we, through Kubrick's lens, can. And I love that. Yeah, yeah. So my number four, to me, it's got to be high on the list uh, because it's just one of my favorites. And that is actually Lolita. I love Lolita so much. I love it more every time I see it. To me, this movie absolutely soars. Lolita was the moment that Kubrick said, no more fear, no more anything. I'm going to be, this is, I am that guy. I'm the dangerous filmmaker you need to hide your kids from. (laughs) And uh, he made a film so human and so Mm -hmm. accessible about such a, even here in 2017, such a taboo topic. Absolutely. What he was able to do with James Mason in that role, who other than James Mason could have played that part? It was just so perfect Mm -hmm. because even that casting was such a subversion. You know, when you think about the sort of roles that James Mason typically was in, whatever the case, um, the statements that it makes, that whole sense of, yeah, we're talking about adults having sexual relationships Mm -hmm. with children and that kind of stuff. And yeah, that's horrible and that's horrifying. Let's push through that and let's find out what else it is. Right. And let's find out what's underneath that that has something to say to who we are as a culture, as a society. That discussion is one worth having. And I feel like Kubrick, maybe even still, is one of the only filmmakers now in the grave mm-hmm. who's willing to have that discussion. But anyway, I love Lolita so much. I, I just I can't say enough good about it. So my number three is Dr. Strangelove. It's one of those films I love more every time yeah. I watch it and I get more of, of it. The photography of it is just so amazing, yeah. but to such great effect. And the fact that it's black and white and we're talking about this topic that should be actually so black and white, but it's, it's yeah. not to any of these people in this room that where they're trying to discuss what they're going to do. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, number three, Dr. Strangelove. Oh, okay. uh, and that was hard for me because I want Dr. Strangelove <laughs> to be number one because I love the movie at a level that I just, I can't even express. I've led film groups where I've said, okay, before we all leave, we need to watch Dr. Strangelove because I don't want to have relationships in my life with people that haven't seen this film. Right. It's, it's too good and it's too important and it's too right and it's too funny. and it, it's, it's so ahead of its time. Yeah. Everything about it is just so, I mean, my goodness, what a 
hilarious film. Peter Sellers in that movie, I just, I, I laugh like an idiot he's every un- time. He's unbelievable. He's unreal, but just every single thing. I, uh, George C. Scott, incredible, Whoa, hilarious, yeah. fantastic. Sterling Hayden, mm-hmm. fantastic job. It just down to the last detail. Dr. Strangelove is a movie that is, it's an essential film. It is. Okay, so my number two, this is crazy. It's hard to, but my number two is 2001. Yeah. Um, meaning The Shining is my number one. Yeah, yeah. I love 2001. I love the beauty. I love the color. I love the ideas and what it's attempting to explore about people, about technology, and how the technology seems to be more adept at emotion than the people in the actual film. That's a crazy, cool subversion in the music. But really, The Shining, for me, takes the cake because it was just a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And why it's my number one is because it transcends that. It's about horror, but not horror in the sense of who's going to jump out. No, it's it's like what's going on in someone's mind. Yeah. What's possible in the heart, in the mind of someone when they're pushed to the brink of... I don't know, of crisis, yeah. struggling with who they are and identity. And I mean, I just, I love The Shining so much and I love how Kubrick uses all of what's possible in cinema to yeah. tell that story. What should be done with him? I don't know. I don't think that's true. I think you have some very definite ideas about what should be done with Danny. And I'd like to know what they are. Well, I, I think maybe he should be taken to a doctor. You think maybe he should be taken to a doctor? When do you think maybe he should be taken to a doctor? As soon as possible. As soon as possible. Jack. My number two is The Shining. Potentially his most layered film. That thing is an unending onion. It's just, oh, you, yeah. you, you can peel it, you can peel it, you can peel it. There's more, there's more, there's more. Every performance, just every composition, every color, everything points to something. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw this Room 237. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. I know a lot of the different theories that are kind of raised from it. but If I'm being completely honest, yeah. I found the film tedious. Okay. I did not care for Room 237. I thought it was more annoying than anything else. All right. Because I felt like it actually sucked enjoyment out of The Shining rather than kind of added to the intrigue of it. If you like Room 237, the documentary about The Shining, then you know, go with God. But the film, though, The Shining, the, one of the things that I appreciate the most about it is there is a line in between the real and right. the mental state, but you never know where it is. <laughs> Every single time I've seen The Shining, and at this point I've seen it a lot of times because I love the film, I change my mind about where that line right. is. You know, like, okay, well, what about that scene? Yes. Is this in his head? What about that scene? Is, this, is, his, is his drive to the overlook, is that, is that in his head? You know, and it just you can watch the film in so many different ways, and every single way that you watch it, it works. Kubrick is this master of color Mm -hmm. of composition of tension these lingering cuts that just they go on and on and on i pause it actually every time i see the film Mm -hmm. the scene with nicholson in the red bathroom you can just sit and stare at that at that at a still of that scene and be like this is enough i know it's so true mr grady you were the caretaker here 
I'm sorry to differ with you, sir. But you are the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker. I should know, sir. I've always been here. Anyhow, my number one, I, it, it has to go to 2001. It's a cool place to have it, considering what you said earlier about it. Yeah, I've heard it said. And this is a hard thing to argue with. The most important cut in the history of film is the cut from the bone to the space station. Mm. It's the most consequential scene transition in the history of, of movies. Wow. Now, who's to say? And and I'm sure you could argue that. But to me, I think that there's some truth to no, that. for sure. It's Kubrick saying, this is who people are, mm-hmm. and this is who we've become, and this is who we're becoming, and this is what it's all leading to. This is where it's all taking us. This is where it has taken us. It's just he's saying a thousand enormous statements about humanity as a whole with one cut, a bone turning into a space station. And it's done in silence. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's, I mean, you know, we can all hum the theme to 2001. It was one of the most powerful scores of all time. But that particular moment just kind of takes place in this kind of silent, airy nothing. There's no sound design. There's anything. There's just a very simple cut. And in that cut is the story of the planet earth yeah and of course you know it goes on and on and on for for then uh, you know i'm haunted by uh hal singing daisy as it fades out and dies and i can sing it for you i'd like to hear it hal sing it for me daisy daisy give me your answer to So many oh. iconic moments from that film that it just, it'll never leave you. No. And uh, and I'm embarrassed that I hated the movie when I first saw it because it's one of the greatest things that we have as, oh, a, as a culture in so film. So beautiful. It really is. Uh, well, anyway, you're you're listening to two guys who love Stanley Kubrick, and I, I don't think there could have been a more appropriate filmmaker no. to choose for our final number 15. Than the dangerous filmmaker that Kubrick is. That's a way to send us off. So, Daniel, would you say Fear and Desire, (laughs) the freshman film of Stanley Kubrick, is this a film that stands on its own or would you consider it a completist film? Here's what I'd say. If you can find Fear and Desire, you don't need to watch it. (laughs) I I do think it's for completists only. I don't think that you need to see it. You have too many other films, Kubrick films, you need to watch. Yeah. I mean, yeah. How would you answer that question? I think the definition of completist is Fear and Desire. Yeah. In fact, I think it fits that definition definition better than any film we've talked about. Yeah, that's true. Because it's not like you're saying, oh, it's just terrible and it'll make you mad or, oh, you know, it was important, but, you know, was it good? It's not THX and it's not Clerks and it's not American Beauty. It's not any of those things. It's there's exactly one reason to go out and watch Fear and Desire. And that is to be able to say at the end of it, I've seen every Kubrick film. 
And that's completest. That's what that means. And it's crazy to say that about Kubrick. It is. It is. Well, I think that about does it for this episode of The Freshman 15. And of course, this is episode 15. So what I should say is that about does it for Mm -hmm. this part of the episode. And typically, this is where we end things. And we usually have a couple of nice things to say about Steelcraft and emails and Facebook. But this time around, no, we've got a few other topics that we were hoping to to cover before we go. People are wondering. They're asking questions. Yeah. What's going on with the Freshman 15? What's going on? This is episode 15. And you know, I mean, I think this is a good time. We got an email. We did. Yeah, we got an email from a friend of ours, faithful listener, Pete Diebel. Oh, Pete. So this is what he says. He says, hey guys, I've really enjoyed the first 14 episodes of this podcast. I hope you're not planning to pretend like the 15th episode will be the last. If you do, I'm calling bullshit. (laughs) Okay, well, shots fired. (laughs) First of all, that'd be completely messed up for those of us who've become dependent on your podcast to make it through the drudgery of incessant bad news and disappointing career arcs. But secondly, you guys are clearly having too much fun to shut it down now. Lastly, I want to let you know that I'm disappointed that you haven't talked about Christopher Nolan. I suppose there's still a chance that you're saving it for the 15th episode. Sorry, Pete. But something tells me that it doesn't have quite enough gravitas to be the ender. Would it be too much to ask for you guys to record a Christopher Nolan episode and just email it to me privately? Thanks, guys. You're the best. Pete. Well, first of all, uh, no, that's not too much to ask. And so, Pete, you can expect your very special, uh, personalized Christopher Nolan episode in your email any day. If it doesn't come, just keep waiting. It's yeah. gonna, it's, it's coming. It'll be there. <laughs> just you know, someday. <laughs> but but the, no, that's that's so the way, kind. I, it really is, and thank you, Pete, for writing in. And I want to get something straight right now. Pete isn't the first person to say. Look, you know, why are you guys teasing this out about whether or not you're going to keep the podcast? You know, we all know that you know what you're going to do or not going to do. So why are you playing this game? I promise this is not a game. This has been an ongoing conversation every time. It really has. Up until even like a week ago, we were still trying to figure out, you know, is this something that we should do? Should we maybe, you know, should we end it? Maybe just do a special now and then. Should we just keep going, you know, just bull right into it? The episode 16 of the freshman 15. Should we complete? Completely change it up and do a sophomore something or other. You know, I honestly, these are real discussions. We don't, we didn't have the answers to, but obviously we're we're at a fork in the road. We need it. We need to have the answers. Yes. So do we? So let's talk about that. First of all, I think it's important to point out we. I wasn't really sure what to expect totally from this podcast. I remember when we first sat in these chairs behind these microphones to record the first episode of Blood Simple. I had, and Daniel, you probably don't even know this, I had a much different idea of what this podcast was going to be than what it actually wound up being. Really? It's true. Yeah, genuinely. I didn't expect it to be so cerebral. Okay. I thought, you know, it was going to be a couple of guys that love film. You know, I we talked no, numerous times about like uh, the Hold Up podcast. Just a podcast right. I love. They have this certain kind of chemistry. It's just you know, it's, everything's funny, and they you know they 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 make fun of things, and they make fun of each other, and it's just, so fun. And I was like, oh yeah, I can see me and Daniel doing that kind of thing. And then from the first five minutes of our first episode. There was a shift taking place in my brain where I was like, "Oh, this is this that, is what we're doing." Yeah, we're doing the, we're doing something way different than that. It took me several episodes to kind of get used to the fact that what I thought it was going to be was not what it was. Okay. I'm I'm just being completely. No, that's honest. great. This is great to hear. I'm actually thrilled mm-hmm. with what it, we wound up doing, um, and I can honestly say it was around the Halloween episode. I don't know if you if you recall how far in the Halloween episode was. Yeah, I mean, we started in around July, so yeah, yeah. there was a 
moment when I was editing that episode that I thought, we're in a pretty good space. Mm -hmm. I like this. This is comfortable. I feel like we're finding our groove a little bit. And so to me, that was kind of the moment when the the shift happened in me where I was just like, it was it was a full embrace of our own kind of aesthetic, I guess. I so know. for me, I think the one of the episodes that clicked for me, which is funny because it was a film we didn't like and we were talking about it, was American Beauty. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the episode for me. I'm like, all right. Yeah. Not because we had a film that we were bashing on, but more I felt like we kind of clicked into this way of, of doing it yeah. that I thought we could kind of carry forward with films that we liked and yeah. that we appreciated and things we wanted to talk about. So that was one of my favorite moments. After that, I remember recording that and just being like, man, that was fun. Yeah. this is That's what I want to come in to do and, and to talk that way and to have that energy. So, and, and to answer Pete directly, I don't think that it was ever part of the discussion between you and I, Daniel, that, okay, well, you know what, 15 films and then we're just going to end it. That's right. just done. We're never doing anything again. It's just done, done, done. I don't think we ever were really considering that because from the start, we were just having too good a time. The question is, is it going to be kind of a thing that sort of peters off? Are we going to change the format or are we going to just, you know, so our listeners deserve an answer. This is what I would like to say about Mm -hmm. it. Daniel and I have talked about this at some length and for many months and uh, a few things. The first thing is probably the biggest thing, which is we do plan on making the Freshman 15 Volume two. We're going for it. It has to happen. Two big reasons. Uh, Number one is, of course, we like each other. We like doing this too much. It's just just too good a thing to not do anymore. Honestly, Jeremy, such a highlight. Yeah. My life right now. I appreciate that. Listening to your voice. (laughs) No, but seriously, I love it so much. So I'm excited. There's so many filmmakers that deserve to be. I mean, and and by the way, if you're sitting there going, how could you not bring up Christopher Nolan? How could you not bring up James Cameron? How could you not talk about Fellini, Scorsese? How could you not talk about Orson Welles or Alfred Hitchcock? Shyamalan. Shyamalan. (laughs) Yeah. They're equal in my mind. (laughs) Um, and, and you know what? My answer to that is I agree. How yeah, could we? We couldn't. I mean, there were so many times we we're like, wait, should we do this one or should we do, should we talk about this filmmaker or this filmmaker? Yeah. And some of those filmmakers we mentioned and you just mentioned because we haven't talked about them yet. Yeah. Even people that, you know, we were talking today about Stanley Kubrick, the dangerous filmmaker. He's not the only dangerous filmmaker. Right. You know, I mean, I would love to have an episode about. Lars von Trier, you know, I would love to have a, a Gaspar No mm. episode. You know, these are like That'd be crazy. <laughs> these are insane dudes. I don't know. I think it would be really, really an amazing episode to talk about. But that being said, this podcast, it's not easy to put together. No. It takes some time. There's a lot of editorial that goes into it. The actual time that we sit here behind these mics, mm-hmm. that's probably the tiniest part of the time that goes into it. Um, of course, there's watching the movies. Right. There's the research that we both put into it. Probably the biggest chunk is doing the post-production on it. People don't know this, but they should. And I don't think you're going to tell them, so I will. Uh, and this is one of my big thank yous, is thank you to you. Because you, Jeremy, this is hours and hours and hours and hours of your life between these episodes editing. For those of you out there, you don't know this, Jeremy does the lion's share of the work on that. I get to buy the beers. <laughs> I get to watch the movies. I get to have a great conversation, but Jeremy's the one who has to stay up late and do the editing, wake up early. So um, it's a lot of work. 
Well, I, I appreciate you saying that, Daniel. Uh, you're not wrong. It is an awful lot of effort and a lot of time. And were I a, a better editor, it might take not as much time as I'm making it take, but it's become quite a quite an endeavor. So that being the case, a, a couple of things. Number one, as excited as we are to continue on podcasting, uh, we are going to need to take a very desperately needed break yeah. for a while. We're going to continue on with episodes later this year. And when that does happen, probably the schedule will be a little looser, not quite as frequent. Right now, our schedule is we've been fairly consistently hitting two episodes a month. The first and the 15th of the month, we release a new episode. And just about on average every month, we also release a special. When you add all that together, um, we've been on a schedule for the last seven or eight months where yeah. we've essentially been doing an episode every week and a half. Right. You can't sustain it. We can't really sustain that, unfortunately. It's just there's there's too much going on. But that being said, I think there's also things that we want to do. We want to play with the format yep. a little. Uh, we've been talking about some different ideas. I mean, the Oscar special, I think, was a great example of just how fun that was to kind of change up the format for that. Yeah. Invite someone in, have a conversation. I don't know what that would look like or even if we could do that, but certainly that's in my mind. It's like, wow, that would be, be fun to try. Sure. I mean, you know, is that in the form of directors of freshman films? We would love to get people who are uh, have made their own films to, to talk with them about that kind of experience. You know, that's something that we'd love to hear your feedback on. But the idea is we're both creative individuals. We don't want to stay stagnant. We love producing content. Mm -hmm. What form is that going to take? That's something that we're still talking about. All we know is we have a podcast called The Freshman 15. I think it would be kind of silly to just not do any more episodes. Right, and we have to. Yeah. And this is one of the beautiful things is we get a lot of feedback, whether if it's in the form of on Facebook or through email or even people whom we talk to and know. They're so encouraging of it, not just because they know us, but they're actually grateful for it. I mean, yeah. I hear people say all the time that they've thought differently about filmmakers or films because of conversations that we've had. Yeah. And that's cool. Uh, it's more than cool. That's just, that's way more than I'd hoped, honestly. Yeah. Where I work, there's a woman, she's a temp, mm -hmm. and she listens to our episodes while she does data entry at my office. You know, every so often I'll tap her on the shoulder and I'll ask her something. And she always says, oh, this is so weird. You're asking me something in one ear and then you're telling me about Strictly Ballroom in the right. other ear. And I was like, oh, that's really good. And she, and she mentioned to me one day, you know, me and my husband were talking about this. We need to watch better films. Mm. I was like, okay. And she says, no, I mean it. There's such good things. There's such great art in the world to enjoy. Right. It's possible to do it if you're more intentional about it. And listening to your podcast has told me that this is something that I need to do. And to me, there's no better thing. Right. There's sure. the, I mean, that's it. This podcast is a success because of Brooke. And when I think about Brooke... I think I'm glad I do this. Yeah. It's, it's a great thing. So great. You know, that being said, by the way, I hope you won't mind a little bit of indulgence. There's some people that I think that it's really, really important to acknowledge. We need to thank them. It's true. The first, uh, as you've already mentioned, um, the people that we want to thank, you know, really more than anyone else is just the listeners. Uh, if you're tuning in, particularly if you're tuning in regularly, thank you. Yeah. It means a lot to us. We don't have analytics on who you are or where you are or any of that kind of stuff, but we see the number of people and generally what parts of the world that they're from. And 
whenever I look at it, my heart grows. I know. Because it's, it's just so fantastic. And it makes it so much bigger than just the two of us sitting in front of microphones talking about movies that we love. I don't know, to engage a larger conversation, that means so much to me. Those of you who have given us feedback yeah. and written us notes on Facebook or on email, including people that we know in our lives yep. that just walk up to us and say, you know, I've been listening to the podcast and I really appreciate it. Thank you for interacting. Some regulars, Nate Dunleavy, John Nelson, you've had multiple comments over the episodes about things. We really appreciate it. Anyone whose note that we've ever read, and especially anyone whose note that we haven't read, right. it means a terrific amount to us. And I want to thank those who've gone on to iTunes and have rated us. That's, big deal. That yeah. is a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I, I've gone on there and I've seen some of the comments and, and the ratings, and I've been very grateful that people have done that. Anyone who's promoted us in any way, whether it's on your Facebook wall or on Instagram, or even if you've just walked up to somebody else and said, hey, I was listening to this podcast. It's called The Freshman 15. These guys are kind of smart and funny, and you know they talk about films. Um, if you've done that ever in your life, thank you. You're a fucking champ. Yeah, you're amazing. You're the exact kind of person that we need more of in the world. We literally need more of this. <laughs> okay, but a few specifics. A good friend of ours, Randy Baranowski, uh, he showed us how to work a soundboard. I mean, he came in the very beginning. It was really, really cool. He came around the American Beauty episode, and all of a sudden, our episodes sounded twice as good uh, just because he said, look, you can plug this into that, and, and it actually works. Yep. So. Thank you, Randy. The Hold Up Podcast. Yes. You guys didn't realize that you were inspiring another film podcast across town, but you were. John Nelson in particular. You you never hesitate to, to like us, to talk about us, to promote us. In every way, you're an awesome possum. Yeah, that's awesome. Big thank you. If you heard our Oscar special, you already know uh, Jeff Jensen. He's the smartest guy we know. Seriously. If you don't read his material on Entertainment Weekly, you should. It's as smart as you would imagine. I mean, he elevated that conversation. It was It was, it was really, really great. Yeah, was awesome. um, Jeff was a listener from the beginning, and the fact that he regularly promotes us, uh, it's a big deal. Jeff, thank you. He's the best. He really, you are really the best. Okay, so this one's a little more personal. In the eight months that this podcast has been going, my wife and I, we campaigned for Hillary Clinton. We traveled in France and Great Britain. And as of late fall, we completed our certification and we became foster parents. And all of this while both of us worked full-time jobs. I don't say that to try and impress anybody, but, but rather to point out that through it all, my wife never once complained or objected to my treating this podcast as a priority. Many's the night she's fed and tucked in our little house guest on our own because I had to pull a late night editing an episode. Instead of grumbling or rolling her eyes, she shared every episode on social media the morning it came out and told me how great each one is. Anyway, Carrie Bear, thank you. I know sometimes it doesn't seem like it, but I truly do love you even more than films. Yes, it's two guys in a room recording, but not represented in this room are the three kids between us who um, need to be put to bed, who need to be taken care of when we're watching films or when you're editing or... From day one, Jeremy, when I told Mandy about this idea, I have this thing where I can kind of get a little bit self-conscious. I'm like, yeah, this sounds fun. This sounds like a great idea. I just, I don't know if it'd be something I'd be good at or whatever. And Mandy is always saying, Daniel, do it. You need to do it. Yeah. You love this and I want you to do it. And she said multiple times, 
Daniel, I will do what it takes to make this happen. Wow. She is feeding the kids. She's putting my boys to sleep and holding down the fort. So I'm really grateful. Mandy, I love you. Grateful for you. Thank you for supporting me, for supporting us, for supporting this podcast, and for being interested in it. One last thank you. Probably, honestly, it's the most important thank you. In April 2016, I wrote this as a text message. Possible podcast idea. The Freshman 15. We pick 15 films and dedicate an episode to each. The thing is, they're all first-time directorial efforts, so episodes might include Blood Simple, Hard Eight, Bottle Rocket, even Citizen Kane is technically fair game. We discuss what worked, what didn't, what seems to be embryonic ideas and techniques that showed up later, more mature work. Eh, it's one idea. <laughs> so I remember that text message. That was the text, and that was uh, 11 months ago. Uh, the person that I want to thank the most is my partner in crime, Daniel Long. Somebody asked me recently uh, whether you and I, Daniel, had become better friends through this experience. And I realized when they asked that, that sure, of course we had. Right. But what I didn't expect when we started was for you to become one of my most important and essential relationships. And for those listening who don't know me well, I can be a controlling guy when it comes to creative endeavors. But every single idea I ever proposed, Daniel was excited, fully on board. Uh, Trust me, I know no one wants to hear me gush about this, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say that this podcast is the kind of thing I'd listen to, even if I weren't co-hosting, because one of my favorite things in the world is hearing Daniel Long talk about film. So that wow. is the truth. So thank you, No, Daniel. that means a lot. Because when I sit here, and this is true, from day one, I was like, I thought, oh, shit, what am I doing here? Because <laughs> listening, no, no, listening to you talk about films, I I just see things in a way that I haven't before. And we've talked about this. And, and one of the beautiful things about you, Jeremy, one of the things I, I sing your praises about all the time, not that you see it as a flaw, but you're constantly apologizing for it okay, I don't want to over-direct this, or I don't want to control this. You tell me that all the time. But it's something I'm grateful for. This was our idea. You've continued to take it into places where I want to go. You're a technical guy, and you look at films that way. I'm a feeler, and I feel films, um, which is why I think this makes for great conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I'm grateful for that insight, but Honestly, I look forward to the conversations that people don't get to hear. And we open up our beers and we talk about our lives. I am often someone who can listen to others pretty well. But I don't know if I have a a lot of people who I let listen to me. And and I think that you're one of those people. So thank you, Jeremy Bear. Thank you. That means a lot. This is one of my favorite things that I do now. Thank you for joining me, Daniel. Thank you for joining us, listeners. Yes. We appreciate it. Um, The only other thing that I wanted to mention before we sign off is, uh, yes, we're going to be taking some time off, but... Don't despair. We fully intend on dropping a special on you here and there. We're going to give ourselves reason to record. Why not? To watch movies and to talk about them. That's right. Uh, And in fact, that's one of the reasons I actually was looking forward to taking a little time off because there are films that I've been wanting to get into that have nothing to do with this podcast that I haven't had time for. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Clerks too. So look forward to that. We've had other opportunities presented to us to live podcast from venues to guest on other podcasts and those kinds of things that all things that we're really, really excited about. Needless to say, you've not heard the last of us. Take heart. 
Uh, we genuinely, sincerely want to thank you for listening, not just to this episode, but for listening to us for the last eight months, you, honestly. You've journeyed with us, and I mean, I can't, I just can't thank people enough for it. Yeah. We're two guys who love film, and that's the point of the whole thing. And you're someone who likes listening to, talking about, taking in film, and uh, we love you for that. So thank you. Well, I think that's really all we have to say for this 15th very special episode of the Freshman 15. We want to thank you for joining us for a little while. That's it for us. I'm Jeremy Bear. And I'm Daniel Long. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye.